Welcome to The Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox partners with people who are dedicated to doing the right thing, never cutting corners and always looking for ways to improve. Discover why they're the trusted source of high quality protein for families across the country. At ButcherBox, they believe in better. For them, that means caring about their animals and the planet, treating our planet with respect. It means improving the lives of animals and the livelihoods of farmers. And ultimately, it means better meals enjoyed together. The protein from ButcherBox is never given antibiotics or added hormones. It's humanely raised. Our family loves the convenience and quality and knowing that we are getting humanely raised and sustainably harvest protein. You can customize your box with the right amount of food and variety of meat to fit your family's individual needs. If you're interested in getting a special offer, go ahead and head to healinggroundmovement.com resources to follow the link for ButcherBox. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and we are going to have um, a little bit of a different conversation around health and wellness today, and mostly talking about um, health and wellness of our community and avoiding crisis, conflict, violence prevention. And we can take this conversation to mean talking about our community at large, um, particularly as we go Um, come out of quarantine and back into the world. And we see this unfortunate rise of um, all of the mass shootings here in the United States again, or we can take it to violence prevention within the home and in that small community where um, there was no shortage of gun violence over the time of quarantine. So a little bit of a warning for those of you who might find this to be a sensitive topic. We are going to be talking a lot about conflict resolution, but we have a phenomenal guest joining us today Um, Phil Andrew is um, a well-experienced and well-versed individual to take us through this conversation. So a little bit about Phil. He is the co-founder and principal of PAX Group. He has over 30 years of professional expertise in building great teams, cultures, and strategies that navigate complex and dynamic relationships, projects, and environments. Phil served 21 years as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, that's FBI for those in the know, throughout the U.S. and overseas with expertise in violence prevention, counterterrorism, intelligence, uh, crisis management, and hostage negotiation, crimes against children, undercover work, behavioral analysis, and broad investigation experience. He has led complex investigations and deployed regularly on domestic and international kidnappings and hostage takings, and has received numerous FBI and U.S. Department of Justice awards. He is an adjunct instructor of Negotiation, Business Intelligence, Leadership, and Ethics at DePaul University's uh, Keltstadt Graduate School of Business and Development of Management and Entrepreneurship. He is, is relied on for strategy, policy, and planning expertise by Chicago's Citywide Violence Reduction Working Group, a public-private effort to coordinate data, strategy, and resource to reduce gun violence. So when we talk about having a well-versed and well-educated guest today, you can't come up with a more um, uh, thorough background than that. So Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Carly. Wonderful. Well, Phil, this is a, um, a, I want to say a heavy resume 
um, that you are carrying with you. What got you into this history and experience um, within the FBI and in, in managing conflict and conflict and crisis resolution? Well, I think probably uh, as many people think about conflict and crisis, um, I, it's the same starting point. I grew up in a family of seven children, so a big house of nine, and it was not light on controversy. <laughs> Some that, you know, just dealing with the outside world and folks coming back to, you know, uh, recuperate and get ready for the next day and all the tensions around that. Um, anytime you put a lot of people in a small place with limited resources, uh, that by de definition is a crisis. And, you know, just navigating the different personalities of growing up and defining yourself in, you know, in a, a large group. So I, I, I think that there was some benefit to just growing up in that circumstance and in, you know, roughly a turbulent time. You know, I was born in the, in the late 60s, which uh, has a lot of parallels with the national uh, psyche and conversation that we have now. Um, and parents who were trying to navigate that and, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and I've created a lot of co controversies and crisis, you know, by, by, by virtue of being in those, those circumstances. So, but, but I always wanted to be in law enforcement or the military. And, um, and th that really, uh, I, 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 you know, because of a lot of good support and mentors and opportunities, I've been able to fill, fulfill on that, but also I had a had a in, as a young person when I was a twenty year old uh, college swimmer, I experienced uh, a, a rather public crisis that you know sort of taxed the the skills that I had developed mm -hmm. and put some emphasis on you know how I was going to navigate my own way out of that crisis and maybe learn a few things and figure out how I was gonna contribute back to the community. And that's where I think that the, the surprising thing for me was how much navigating my own recovery and dealing with the trauma of a, of a critical incident also related to the ability to contribute to preventing it from happening again and it providing learning and support for others. Amazing. And would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about that that journey for you, being the, in that critical situation and kind of the pieces you started to draw from it? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, one, that family situation had a lot to do prepare positively and negatively. I think participation in sports and kind of growing up, particularly in, in swimming, which is an unusual sport. You know, we think of it as an individual sport, but in truth, if you're going to be any good at swimming, and uh, you know, right now we have the Olympic trials going on. They just finished up for the U.S. And what you see are two people who qualify of the thousands of people who had this dream. Um, and what you find is the two people that qualify, you know, yeah, they did the work, but they did it in the context of a coach, a team, a parent, uh, you know, a community system that supported them and their goal. And um, so I think that that was a big piece of that is just having some experience of, of a goal that was challenging, that, uh, that you knew that you couldn't accomplish on your own, but you needed relationships and systems in place to you know, get you to, to where you'd like to be. And, um, 
And there, there, there was a big element of obviously with swimming with, with breathing and breath control. It's one of the few events, certainly one of the few sports in the world where you have to hold your breath. <laughs> True. Fantastic. And so what happened at 20 years old that created that pivot for you um, to start pulling all of these, you know, learned experiences that you were thankfully already resourced with um, to launch you into this next, this next phase of your life and career? Well, you know, and I want to be careful, like just sort of there was prior experience, and I think I benefited something a little bit by their carryover or the overlap, but by no means, um, you know, was really ready to take these things. And, and that's the sort of also the definition of crisis and conflict is we can think about it, we can know about it, we can prepare for it, but one of the things is we just don't know when it's going to happen. Even yeah. if we know it's going to happen, it always surprises us. And you know how we manage that, but that is exactly the scenario. I was 20 years old, uh, had finished my sophomore year in college. My last swimming practice of the year was uh, in an outdoor setting at the University of Illinois. And my coach coming up to me and saying, hey, we're gonna have a great year. You train hard this summer. And really returning home at a place where I was feeling good about myself, kind of like I just was kind of figuring out how to learn and study and was getting grades that I could be proud of and uh, definitely contributing on this team where I felt very positive about, you know, my identity and my contribution. Mm -hmm. And the very next morning, um, there had been a deranged person, somebody who had a long history of psychological problems, had been planning an attack on the community and she was executing it that day. And unbeknownst to me and anybody else in the community, um, it resulted in her setting fire to a home, sending poisons throughout the country, uh, trying to ignite a cyanide gas device in a, in a grade school. And it culminated with her entering a second grade classroom in a school just blocks from my childhood home where she opened fire on second graders, um, shooting six, killing one immediately. And then in the course of her escape, she crashed her car uh, just outside my, my childhood home and a hostage situation ensued in my home where my mother, father, and I were held at gunpoint for you know roughly 90 minutes. We were able to negotiate uh, her um, letting my mother and father go. My mother was able to get to the police and alert them of what was happening in the house. But at, at, at one point in this, I, was, I found myself one-on-one -on -one with her looking for an opportunity to disarm her. And I was shot in, in that attempt. And, um, and she subsequently took her own life uh, moments after I was able to escape. But what I didn't know at the moment is the bullet had ripped through my chest, uh, puncturing both of my lungs, putting a hole in my esophagus, my stomach, uh, crashing through my, my uh, pancreas. Mm -hmm. and uh, grazing my pericardium, and that got lodged in my left lap. And, uh, but I didn't know the significance of, of, of that damage um, really until almost days later when I was recovering. But dealing with this inability to breathe, even after I was able to escape the house and get to, get mm -hmm. to responders on, on the driveway. And that became its own sort of interesting uh, intersection of 
thinking about swimming and whether I'd swim again and reacting to the people around me where there was a lot of confusion and panic and, uh, and it still being a very, very dangerous situation um, and a critical one for my own survival. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And, and what an incredible story as far as how the family can come together within that situation, your mother and your father and support and everyone trying to take that role but still a situation we all hope and pray never to find ourselves in. Um, and yet here you are coming to that level of, of preparedness and doing the very best you can in that moment. It, uh, and, and that's where you kind of learn what your assets are and what your deficits are. We have a saying in crisis and conflict that um, if you've got cracks going into a crisis and the pandemic has been such a, uh, a like perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Every underlying social issue, whether inequity, um, problems with our healthcare system, um, you know, stress and stress management, uh, inability of organizations to meet the needs of their employees and their their clients. Mm-hmm. Wherever those stressors were, they were then magnified and and they cracked and turned into huge fissures that mm-hmm. we're still recovering from. And it's just like that for every crisis. And there were some good things about our relationships and our our uh, thing, you know, assets that we had going into this. And then there were some big gaps, and those gaps showed in the moment. And uh, and the things that we had a little bit of practice in, mm-hmm. um, even though it wasn't at gunpoint, those things uh, still kind of surfaced as assets in the moment as well. Amazing. I- there's a quote that I love um, from another health podcaster, Sean Stevenson. I don't know if it's his originally, but I'll give him the credit. Is that, you know, we don't rise to the challenge. We fall to our level of preparedness. Um, you know, and it's, and I, I think about this when I talk to mothers. I mean, there's all different types of crises unless you're talking about this. And then you make the allusion to the pandemic as a whole and the way our society works. I think about new mothers and um, bringing a new child into your home is inviting crisis into your home just by nature of it. And it's it. The advice is well. That's a really ridiculous time to think that you're going to learn new behaviors. You know, just yes. set your house on fire, and now you're going to um, clean your pantry. It, yeah. <laughs> we need to have a little bit of of forward thinking. Is kind of of what I'm hearing you um, start to talk about. Yes, I love that. You, you, we never rise to the occasion. We always sink to our level of training, <laughs> and um, you know. And you don't necessarily have to have trained exactly what the moment calls for, but if there's something, something rope, something, some muscle memory, you know, some conditioning that you can fall back on, everything around high level performance uh, tells us that we can prepare for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the, the, the starting point of every conversation about crisis and conflict is that we always have one thing that we can control no matter what the circumstances. It's very kind of Nietzsche, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But that that presupposes that you've controlled the one thing that you can control. And as you know, that's yourself. Mm-hmm. And But, but I, I always uh, challenge, you know, clients and, and folks that uh, I, I speak with about crisis and conflict is, is that that choice about being in control of yourself comes well before the conflict. Mm-hmm. It's actually a learnable, trainable moment. 
that you're saying, hey, I want to be able to make decisions that are good in a, in a moment of crisis and a moment of anxiety, perhaps even fear. Mm-hmm. And what does it take to re-establish um, control over myself in that moment? And that is intimately trainable, um, mm-hmm. but we have to make that choice to train for it before it happens. And I think this is a leap that I keep hoping our listeners and and the world at large, I want to listen to all all the world at large, listen to us, um, is that we have these things and and our listeners here have have been hearing our podcasts on meditation, on breath work, on um, body control, on tapping, on all of these things that are about um, getting in touch with our limbic system, our emotional system in a way that we can, instead of being hijacked by it, control ourselves and make clear thinking ideas. And there is this schism where it is a fluffy self-care choice that Mm -hmm. is a nice thing to do when you have the free time. And yet somehow it doesn't cross this very, very important bridge that says, and it will be life-saving in times of crisis, whether that is conflict in your home, whether that is, um, you know, the thing that was never going to happen, the, the global pandemic, which everything can happen, or, you know, violence in our community, which unfortunately happens all too often. It is this very small, seemingly insignificant practice that means the difference of life and death in some situations, or depression, loss, anxiety, all the things that can come from it. We have to make that connection. Yes, so so critical. And we often, when, when, when we kind of think about crisis and conflict, we think about it in three phases. There's sort of the before, the during, and the after. And those skills, the, that, that, the, the skills that, you know, to take control of your limbic system, to breathe, to give yourself a moment, to create just a little time where you get to be in, be in charge again, um, is so critical. And that's the before. That, that is the, all the elements of self-care, you know, mm-hmm. sleep, exercise, nutrition, you know, stress management, having a word, a reset word that becomes part of a refrain, mm-hmm. um, breathing, you know, and, and, and really learning to kind of embrace and uh, personalize breathing, you know, because there are so many different models for that breathing, but finding the one that works for you and that you, you, you've practiced mm-hmm. and then bringing that so that it's available in that actual crisis, the during phase. Mm-hmm. And we also talk a lot about it in the post phase of when you're dealing with post-critical incident of what it means to resettle yourself, to then have the conversation, to be able to share what you've mm-hmm. experienced, you felt, um, what you saw. And in many cases, um, you know, and I've responded to a lot of people in their worst circumstances. I find that there is almost greater fear and anxiety after the crisis than during that mm-hmm. people fall back on kind of an, an automated response, you know, a fight or flight. Um, and then there's a realization of how bad it could have been, you know, uh, and that was very much my own experience as 20 is realizing how, how lethal that actually was, how dangerous that situation actually was, that we were navigating, you know, with, with some uh, measure of calmness, mm-hmm. but in the aftermath thinking, oh my gosh, everything could have gone wrong. I mean, all of us could have been mowed down. Uh, she could have gone on to, to, to kill other people. Um, and the magnitude of that actually was scarier than the moment itself. 
And I wonder, um, you know, it wasn't so much what I was having, as I was, I was pre-planning for us to talk about today, but particularly as you made the allusion to crisis like this last year we've been in and now uh, here in the United States, and I know it's different in different countries around the world, we're kind of in that re-emerging phase now as people are coming back to the quote unquote normal and what is normal and what looks different. And I am noticing in my day to day and I'm hearing reported to me um, almost like you were talking about this amplified anxiety about coming back out into a world that was unsafe for a prolonged period of time. And I think about that too in, in some of the other crisis situations you talk about going returning to the school. Um, you know, unfortunately, Colorado is home to the, the Columbine shooting and, and even just going to speech and debate comp competitions at that school two years after. There is a re-entering, you know, and, and I, it wasn't my high school, so that's even a further distance than the kids that actually needed to return to the school after the fact. But there is a returning and a re-emerging and there's uh, catastrophizing how it could have been. There's um, survivor's guilt. There's uncertainty. Can you walk us through that after phase? I don't think anybody gives it a lot of thought or many people give it a lot of thought. Yeah, you know, it's it, in, in that case, I think it's actually, you know, aspects of it, we could be defining it as the after phase, but I think it's actually just an, a, a, a ripple effect you know, the, the rippling of the actual crisis itself. Hmm. And when like we that. think about what re-entry might look like, like, oh, I've been called out or I have an opportunity to, to go back into the community, that in and of itself is its, it, it, its own kind of crisis and conflict. Because I define that as anything that taxes your coping skills, anything that raises your heart rate, anything that you feel like could create enough uh, uncomfort and anxiety that could affect your best decision-making and performance ability. That, I think, is a, if we use that as a definition of crisis and conflict, then it really is kind of a continuation of it. And it requires the same sort of preparation of, mm -hmm. hey, how am I? What, what am I doing to prepare to, to go meet this? And falls back to the same before, during, and after you know, preparation. And I, and I think that there's a model there that really starts with first the individual, you know, what, what can I do, you know, to control myself, to prepare myself? And then what does my team look like? You know, and that kind of dovetailing with that, that description of swimming, who are my partners in this? Who can I rely on? You know, knowing that I'll make better decisions, I'll have a high level of confidence that with a diverse you know, a uh, trusted team that I can step into arenas that are uncomfortable with greater confidence. Who, who's on my team, you know, mm -hmm. as I take this on? And then what does it look like for the community? What then, me as an individual with my team, what can I do to, to provide greater security, comfort, um, uh, support in a larger community? And it, so that before, during, and after those concentric circles with the, the individual team community, those concentric circles, it just is everything is a, a, a repetition of the same skills that have a lot to do with self-empathy, self-preparedness, then moving towards supporting others and creating an environment where others are able to increase confidence and you're building relationship then to navigate those circumstances together. And then how you can create systems and programs that that expands uh, through community. 
And, it, and, and we've come up with a very simple model of peace. Uh, you know, a, a little nod to Pax Group, which is peace in Latin, but it's simply prepare, empathize, active listening, courage, and engagement. So, uh, you know, the, the, the first letters of, of peace there and prepares all those things we talk about, about self-care, breathing, um, what kind of plans and training you might need, but a lot about how you build a healthy team that's focused on these shared goals that, that gives you the confidence and support that you're going to need before, during, and after. Because mm -hmm. you know, some of this training is pretty hard to be vigilant about. Like in, in swimming, it's hard to show up every day and get into cold water. You know, but if you show up there with 12 people and everybody's kind of pushing each other and a coach, you know, nudging you, it's a little easier to jump into, you know, the cold water. Yeah. And, and that's a lot like preparing for crisis and then leveraging the, 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 the kind of the time and the space to use uh, skills around empathy that mm -hmm. you'd need to build that team in the first place, but that you'd want to deploy in a crisis that helps slow down the crisis where you can rely on support, control yourself, and then leverage skills. Because sometimes all you need in as a crisis is a little more time. Mm. Buy a few seconds to take a breath, a few seconds to get help, a few seconds to create space, a few seconds to just remember that I know what I wanted to do in this circumstance. That could be the game changer. So how to, I love this acronym. I was scribbling it down as you were, as you're talking. So peace being um, preparedness, empathy, active listening, courage, and engagement. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Um, so all of these pieces and the preparedness with that mindfulness and that breath. And I think we'll keep coming to some of those more central letters, not because the preparedness isn't the importance because you and I, we've, I hopefully we've, we're driving home that it is the baseline of everything. Um, but because we've provided a lot of that information in other podcasts, I'm really curious to talk, my brain's going like five different directions. I just want to talk forever on this. But when we talk about buying some time, having that breath and slowing down time, you know, because time's a construct. It's either you're in the flow and the whole afternoon's disappeared before you know anything about it, or you're bored out of your mind and you're just watching the click, the top, the clock tick trying to get to what you want to do. How does empathy, things like empathy and listening and courage have any bearing on time, on, on how a crisis situation passes before us? Yes. Uh, well, let's start with courage. You know, the, the courage to um, raise your voice, a courage to say, hey, I'm, this frightens me. The courage to say, I don't understand what you just said. Mm -hmm. um, or the courage to acknowledge someone else's needs above your own. That, mm -hmm. hey, here's what I, here's the way I see this. And then another voice joining that conversation as you're building a team to say, hey, you know, I want to hear what you say, you know, and I want to understand this from your perspective, because if you, if there's not buy-in in this plan that we're developing from you, then you're not going to be able to be a trusted, reliable, you know, teammate going into this. So those are, those are pretty courageous conversations about sharing concern. Mm -hmm. And it also takes a lot of courage to ask questions. It takes courage to, um, really digest a lot of the things that maybe something's gone wrong in the past 
that's never been dealt with. And we were like, well, that's, you know, we don't want to talk about that thing that happened 10 years ago, but it's still much in the, the consciousness. There's still some, some trauma and some, some feeling around that. It takes courage to say, you know what? We're willing to dial the clock back to 10 years ago when we didn't do this right, when we didn't invest in it, when we weren't willing to have a conversation like this, and we're going to talk it through. All those things require courage. Mm-hmm. And uh, the engagement piece is really is, that's as simple as, look, the more you stay on this in the moment, the more focused you are in these conversations, in the preparedness, in even in the crisis of just staying online long enough to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is about engage, engage, engage. And the things that you learn from others and information you gain from staying sort of on the field, mm-hmm. um, these are the things that actually win the day. You know, you, you, maybe your solution wasn't there, but you stayed there long enough to be present with somebody. And, um, and that's what won it. And I'll tell you, there's another aspect here that when you go through a, a crisis or a conflict and you do a few of the right things, that in and of itself can be incredibly bonding. You know, um, you, you can spend a lot of time training with people, but you could short circuit all that training by just going through a very dynamic situation with somebody and be like, well, you'll, you'll be bonded for life. Mm-hmm. And you'll be looking to partner with that person in further crises. <laughs> yeah, you see, um, it, it's very easy to um, erect trappings of, of saying the right things when when nothing is coming under fire, so to speak. But like we were talking about before, when we fall to that level of preparedness, there is no, well, I'm going to take a moment to say the right thing right now. Um, I'm going to do what I am innately prepared and ready to offer. Um, you, you, you get the true measure of a person in that way. Um, I love this conversation about courage and talking and, and even the, to that side, when you're speaking up, then there's that request to participate in active listening, you know, not brushing off, oh, this was 10 years ago. This was 10 decades ago. This was 10 generations ago. All of these layers of trauma you know, remain within communities. And I think as we talk in metaphors of swimming, which I really love, and it, it made me think of, you know, back to my one summer, I pretended I was going to be on swim team and I didn't really have a team and I wasn't going to get in the water. And uh, that's why it was one summer. Um, you do need that group around you. Um, but that team is not just the sports team. You you work a lot um, with a lot of communities like working within office communities or um, families. Maybe that team is your family. Maybe your family has been behaving in a certain system that is not exactly what one would call functional. Um, but but whose is? My, my family says we put the fun in dysfunctional. Um, but being that person who will have the courage to stand up and say, I'm not participating in this style of dysfunction anymore. Can we talk about it? Can we do something different? You become um, not at the mercy of all of these events carrying you along and passing you by, but a punctuation in the story. And how does that impact our family or our uh, place of work or our schools in terms of crisis and conflict resolution when we gather everybody into that team? You know, what does that say about, you know, sort of the contrary of maybe isolating people and not hearing them? What's that benefit? 
Yeah, I think it goes right to the need for trust. And mm-hmm. if if you're willing to say honestly, like, hey, I didn't, I, I didn't, I don't think we did this well, or I don't think I performed as well, you know, and what do you think? Um, that that is such an awesome starting point in any organization of saying of, of just being honest. Because mm-hmm. um, so many organizations, you know, uh, are worried about blame or they're so outcome oriented and they don't focus on the, the team building, the trust building, the listening that it, that build, leads to that team building and trust building. And mm-hmm. they're looking for that. Hey, here's the line we want you to use. And what you really want is people to be functional in a crisis and conflict where they're listening, they're making an individual judgment based on the information through the model that you've provided them. Hey, here, here's what we know, fact-based. Here's what we know about the, the, the options that you'll have and the support that we can provide. But we want you to evaluate your options, whether this be in a school setting or a family setting that really, um, you know, the crisis and conflicts are dynamic by nature. They're not going to happen in a prescribed way. And you want folks to have strong decision making. Mm-hmm. That's connected with some sort of value, whether that be like, hey, we value the protection of life. We value, you know, um, you know, supporting the team or whatever that value is. And um, these are the things that allow them to navigate that and then foster the kind of confidence that, that leads to good team building. Absolutely. It, to me, it's a, it starts feeling a little bit like, you know, and, and I use the, it's it's a loaded word, but I feel like if we we just amplify things in this conversation, but calling something um, a company propaganda. That this is the statement we are going to stand behind. Please don't question or poke it. And by please don't, I mean, do not touch it. And that is different than being able to say, does this statement, can we question this statement? Can we prod it? Can we say, if I tear it apart and put it back together, does it really represent the values? that my family, my school, my work, my community at large is truly standing for? Does it represent that? You can question and prod and actively listen, have courage, empathize with what other people are saying to something that reflects our values, but a party line statement must remain untouched. And that isolation, that untouchable nature of it, um, it really starts to foster distrust. It, It doesn't promote the engagement that perhaps that that phrase has engagement in it. Like that's what it wants, but it's not actually doing the work. And the work is hard. I mean, there this is not simple stuff you're talking about. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point, Carly. And even like when organizations that have spent a lot of time in listening in creating a really uh, thoughtful mission, you know, mm-hmm. value-based mission statement, um, they need to continue that conversation as they onboard new folks and they their teams are augmented, you know, so that that the new players also are in, are, are integrated and uh, the the culture allows them to then participate in that that mission statement because being handed a mission a statement, but is different than um, participating in you know the adoption of one so. All of these are, are you know, life cycles, right? They, they, they've got to always be taken, just like you'd always be in preparation mode, you'd always be onboarding folks and, and, and showing them 
that this is um, this is how we operate instead of giving them the statement saying, hey, we came up with this years before you ever got here. Um, this is this is the expectation on you because there isn't that level of buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you've got to retread some of these conversations as your your chain your your teams morph. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of talking specifically, then using that peace acronym as the basis of this conversation, what what is advice that you can give to whatever style of team? Um, because as, as we're talking here, anytime you grab a group of people together, we got a team um, to to practice this. I mean, let's let's get like nuts and bolts here. Yeah. How do I start walking my talk? You know, I think that uh, probably the place that folks have the most difficult time is with that kind of empathy, active listening phase. Mm. Um, empathy, you know, obviously is is, you know, tr- trying to understand something from somebody else's perspective in a way that bill actually builds connection because somebody wow you really understand what i'm saying here and there are skills associated with that and you know in the crisis and conf- crisis negotiation world that i came out of with the fbi the active listening skills were the at the heart of that of actually the, the neurological um skills and words and phrases that really kind of tickled the brain in a way that said that demonstrate I am listening. Mm-hmm. And I think that most individuals and organizations have the hardest time with that because it's like, oh yeah, I get it. And um, but they're already thinking of what their answer is. You know, these are the conversations where I'm talking about spring break, and uh, and you have only asked about spring break because you want to tell me about your great spring break story. And that isn't active listening. Active listening is where you're using, you're identifying emotion, that you are providing those pauses, that you are repeating, paraphrasing, um, summarizing what someone says. And the, the level of emphasis of, of helping an organization and individuals understand that don't gloss over that. Don't, in any circumstance, in the pre, in the during, and in the post, don't gloss over the ability, the, those skills where you are allowing somebody else to express themselves in, in an important way because the trust, the empathy, the relationships that create there, that's what you're building for all those next steps. And I think it's glossed over. Folks don't fully appreciate it. And they think that it takes time. And, and I think initially it does, this notion of like, hey, I'm going to slow it down and, and try to hear you. Um, but when it, when it's really practiced and it becomes sort of rote and there's some muscle memory for it, it actually doesn't take the the amount of time that, that we think it does. And the amount of time that it saves on the back end because we focused on the, the, the relationship building skills is, you know, is, is very consequential. So I see that all the time where folks want to glide through it. I get it. We're already friends. And even in my own circumstance, you know, like I, I'm, I'm married with four kids, uh, been married for 28 years. And uh, when I do not use those skills, I hear about it. Oh, weren't you trained? You know, I thought you were a crisis negotiator. Is that what? And it is humiliating. And when I do use the skills, there's no mention of it. Mm-hmm. Like it actually, it, the, the, the neurology of, of it, the psychology of it, is so gratifying 
to in, even in a spousal situation that my wife is not saying, oh, you're using your skills. She's just appreciating that she's understood. Yeah. And then that, that moves us forward. The outcome is engagement and feeling safe and feeling part of a team. And that, that these so-called soft skills are part of our foundation. Um, I love that you brought up that it saves us time on the back end. This, this scrambling back, this apology, this I missed it. Um, I see this a lot in, it's, it's a big problem in healthcare that, you know, doctors are trained to take as much information as quickly as we can to get to the diagnosis. Yes. And what I was lucky enough to have some very empathetic teachers that what we were told is if you listen closely enough to your patient, they will tell you their diagnosis without you having to do any of the work, which saves me a lot of time on the back end. I'm not minding that. But it comes with paraphrasing, listening to their pauses and listening to their expression, repeating back to make sure you heard the statement that they said so that your diagnosis actually matches the story being presented to you. Because one symptom can attach to 10,000, but 10 different diagnoses, and you need all of the active listening to tell you which one is the right one, not for you to choose, but to tell you. And yes. we see that across the board, that if we could just listen to people, they actually do tell you what they want. Yes. Well, and importantly, too, that you, you're identifying with what, whatever is happening with them emotionally, but those yeah. other pieces of the story that you're able to put together, that that's great. Now you have diagnosed and surgery, you have the perfect solution for this person, but they are resistant to it now. And they're resistant because you didn't connect with their other concerns that mm -hmm. you glossed over, that you didn't elicit from them. And like you say, they will tell you if you, if you create the right condition, and then it allows you to format that solution in the way that's personalized for them. Mm -hmm. We have a saying in crisis negotiation that, uh, that emotions are universal, that uh, you know what it's like to be angry and sad and happy and elated. Um, but what we don't know is the story associated with it. You don't know what makes me angry or sad or elated. Um, but when we are able to connect that emotion with a specific story, that that's actually the, that magical kind of neurological connection mm -hmm. that allows for us to have influence. That's the rapport, rapport phase that I understand how you feel about the story you've just told me. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to format how I'm going to speak back to you. First, just giving you exactly what you gave me, but then adding on these how we might feel about this solution mm -hmm. you know, in an open-ended question. And that's where the rapport is built that then we're navigating this problem, whether it be with a patient, a family member, you know, fellow FBI agents, you know, classroom mm -hmm. settings uh, and, and preparation for, for even a police officer on the street, you know, with uh, someone they've, they've pulled over or with a community contact where there's already been a crisis. We know that then you're able to navigate the next moment more successfully because a relationship's been created. Mm. I wonder, and I love the the list that you laid out there because I was going to ask you with um, so four children with all of your children, does this come in handy? I'm imagining some of them are getting close to adolescence. Um, that 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 rapport definitely makes a difference between we're still doing what I say. I'm the parent but we're going to do it together or you're going to do it because I told you so. 
which one of those has engagement and teamwork with it? No, without question. You know, I, I often get the question with all the places I've been with crisis and conflict, you know, what has been my most difficult negotiation? And I've, I've uh, supported uh, negotiations that resulted in the release of uh, a New York Times reporter who'd held by the Taliban for nine months. I've done dozens of narco, terrorism, kidnappings for ransom. And uh, the, the negotiations in my kitchen with teenagers have without question been the most challenging where I need to do all of these steps of being prepared for this challenging conversation, stay within the skill set, first seek to understand before being understood. Otherwise I get my ass kicked. I love it. And I, I hope that is of great comfort. It's a great comfort to me as a mother as well, to, to all the parents listening. Um, you've, you've seen it all and the, you know, we, my friend and I will often comment, do not negotiate with terrorists. And we're talking about our daughters, um, four and five, that, that it is that kitchen table conversation. Um, we don't just need to be around the world saving lives. Um, we can save our insanity right here at home. Yes. When, <laughs> what's important, I think, in digesting, why is that the most difficult? Mm -hmm. and, and, and walking it through, it's because of it's so difficult to move myself off of being afraid that mm. I such value on this conversation that this is in a, in a decision tree that if, they, if this isn't done right, then they're going to go to the wrong place with the wrong people and they're going to be living in a van by the river immediately. And none of that is true. None of that is true, but I've made, I'm somehow putting myself in that emotional place. And that's how I'm starting dialogue in a place of absolute and utter fear of a bad outcome and not paying attention to the emotion here and learning that these relationships and struggling with identity and the, the problem that we are fighting over actually has very little to do with the, the pressures and the considerations that you know a, a, a teen is under in mm -hmm. trying to make a decision in the first place. Fabulous. And talking about that fear that you're coming to as the parent in that situation or, you know, whatever uh, person and role you're playing in a crisis situation, coming with that fear of a story you've already committed, uh, already committed to truth, a story you've already created. Um, oh, gosh, that sounds a lot like the emotionalism of letting your limbic system take over and not having. Now, what was that first piece of advice we had? Control over yourself. <laughs> And so it's, it shunts us right back around to what can we do to bring a level of personal preparedness to any of these negotiations, whether they're kitchen table or, or somewhere out in our community. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love it. So one last thing I'd like to talk a little bit more about, and we touched on it a bit, which is, you know, the, the concentric circles of if I care for myself first. And then I care for the team I've gathered around me and it's, it's my immediate family, it's my neighborhood, it's my workplace. And then I take that to the next larger community and then to the next larger community. You know, there's a lot of um, fear just permeating all of our systems that you talked about um, earlier on in our conversation, the systems that we see as broken, um, our systems of um, uh, a systemic racism of school systems, of healthcare, of food access, um, all of these things are just terribly broken. And 
it all got bigger over the course of the last year. How on earth do we see that slow growth of those concentric circles reducing isolation and crisis and conflict at a larger level? It's a, it's a long walk and a, a lot of leap of faith to get there. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, I think that circles back to in the peace model, really this courage and engagement and really kind of having the courage to engage that, um, you know, one, making no assumptions that, that the, the, the communication or the synapse of information has already taken place, that, you know, we as, as law enforcement have an understanding of what resources are available in community mental health or from a local health network. And, um, and the assumption that the bosses have figured this all out, and if there was something there, we would already be told about it. You know, those are, in a vacuum, those are some safe assumptions. And in a crisis, you would be drawing a line directly to it. No, I know where it is. I've got an 800. I've got a contact. Like in a moment, like if I need it, I know where I can go find it. And I know what it and how it will deliver. So it really starts with, you know, the courage to say, um, I, I want a, a, a contact that I could call when I'm moving outside of my own expertise. You know, I've got skills for this, but I would be great if I had somebody who had skills for that. And how would they be available to me when I needed them? Well, it goes right back to the same model of creating that kind of that, that team. You know, mm-hmm. um, now it's, you know, sort of expanding in concentric circles of, of what your team looks like. But there's nothing to stop us from having those conversations, leading you know from the bottom to ask those questions. Hey, I'd really like to have a resource like that when I'm out in the community. Mm-hmm. Where, did, where, where, where can you agitate to have that conversation? And it's very similar to the conversations you'd be having in your home of like, hey, how, how would I access this? You know, what's your role? You mm-hmm. know, what would be the risks to you in doing this? And I find the vast majority of organizations, it's, it's really about the fear of doing something wrong, uh, being humiliated, um, the boss is not backing you up, that if I make a decision that it will be in, in retrospect, it'll be analyzed and I'll be you know, uh, shamed around mm-hmm. it. And those are the things that really keep us in the box in not taking you know, kind of this engagement. Um, action. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that starts with, hey, do I, have I reached a point where I'm willing to take a chance? And then if I have a team, have we had a left dialogue? What's it take for us to go, you know, find out who the community counselors are and and, and what it would take to, for them, a few of them to be on standby or, you know, available to us on our own calls, even without some sort of major, you know, memorandum of of agreement between them that, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the police chief and the city council work out. Yeah. Well, and it, and to your point earlier about doing this work early on saves such a mess on the back end. I mean, we can take a look at current events in the United States over the last year. We have, we saw on a global scale, the murder of George Floyd exposing what people were too afraid to expose in the first place for fear of being put on the spot that, you know, the the police systems 
now strengthened in whatever systemic racism that, that exists in different pockets and all over, but also not having the training to deal with mental health issues. And this didn't apply in this situation with George Floyd, but these were all things that came out about the police sources, uh, police forces. You know, what does the training actually include and where are the holes? Where are the deficits in that training? And where does that resource need to be propped up? You know, it all becomes exposed at one place. Now, do you want it exposed in a crisis situation where everything is being held under the microscope? Or do you want to start in that courageous place of engagement and start to fill in and train those deficits before they become a problem on a national scale? Either way, the crisis will expose where they are. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I, I you know, here, my take on, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the policing um, situation in America today is that we've made assumptions that because they're first responders and they, they are able to do sort of heroic things in certain circumstances that somehow they're doing this in a really healthy manner. And I, I think the truth is, is that policing in general is not a healthy workplace, that they, there isn't high emphasis on this prephase of, you know, being um, self-care, of showing up ready to do this. If your job is to respond to other people's crises, as, you know, by definition, mm -hmm. you need to be really healthy. You need to be really well-prepared. And that means caring for yourself first. And these folks are showing up on a regular basis. I mean, in the Chicago situation right now, no days off for the summer, 12-hour shifts. Like, they're not spending, police officers in Chicago are not spending time with their family this summer um, due to, you know, uh, a, a, really a, a lack of enough resources. And they, that is a terrible situation for folks to take care for themselves and then turn with empathy and compassion to our community that is presenting the crises that they should respond to. Mm -hmm. And so much of that in the workplace culture that, that balances primarily on strength, I can take it, you know, uh, I, can, I can see some really terrible, um, ugly and uh, traumatic things, and then I can get right back up and do it again. Mm -hmm. um, we, we just know that there are limitations to that, but we're not taking the pause and supporting folks so that they're healthy to come back and, and do the right thing. So it's really kind of a very unhealthy culture and workplace mm -hmm. that we've asked to do things that are really difficult in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love that you bring up that we're basing that assumption on and with all of our first responders. And so I do want to be really clear here on this conversation that Phil and I are talking about that personal preparedness and that empathy. You know, there are so many more conversations that we could have about resources and training and expectations and communities and all of that. Um, and so for the purpose of today's conversation, we are really um, filtering in on that crisis compared to this emotional side of things that we do see, um, we, we have an assumption and an expectation on all of our first responders that they are healthy and ready to keep going. We, we have this Superman kind of way of thinking about it. And, you know, we do the same thing to our medical doctors where, you know, they are working 20 hour shifts at times. And again, one of, I think the two most unhealthy um, career paths as far as exhaustion, depression, diabetes, cardiovascular issues, 
um, are within the first responders of the police department and um, the hospital medical system. Mm-hmm. And we are, and these are the people that are showing up to help those who are most vulnerable, most in crisis, and most concerned. And they are getting none of this before planning of resourcing themselves and finding the very basic uh, needs of sleep and community and food and control of self and breath work. And it falls apart in so many different ways. And we see this this chiasm of of deficit falling out before us. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. But there there are some hopeful models out there. You look at... Mm -hmm. uh, airline pilots mm-hmm. where you know so much analysis has gone into crises and what it means to respond to a crisis in the cockpit and how checklists can be used to control anxiety and um, sleep requirements um, you know the the actual amount that uh, folks are required to take off between flights and that's sort of now merged into the trucking industry where you know, really, we have big industries like insurance companies and others stepping in to look at data and say, wait, this is how we get better outcomes. Mm-hmm. We, we really put somebody in a position to be healthy well before they face a crisis. And, um, and they, we, have, we simply have better outcomes. Uh, we either avoid the crises in the first place, but when we do have crisis, they navigate them better. And frankly, on the back end, even if there's a crisis that we were unavoid, we have stronger relationships, connections to then navigate the, the, the post piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think my, I have two thoughts on that is, is what a world if we could finally have workplace rules um, say that you need to get this amount of sleep and drink this amount of water and we will support you and pay you in a way where this is sustainable. But also what a world where we actually have to research and study that and enforce that. It's not part of that cultural norm. So then talking about those concentric circles, you know, we like to see the insurance companies. We like to see the research around airline. Um, we like to see police reform and, and medical reform. We like to see it at this big level. And we also have to start and be that courageous and engaged person within our community to say, I, I want some of that. I want yeah. us to go that direction too. And the circles will meet each other, hopefully. Absolutely. Well, and I think that we're not even, this doesn't ignore performance-based analysis. We just simply get better outcomes. People do better. They're more productive. They're more productive for longer periods of time. They're healthier. And and these environments in which they operate are are healthier. So that the the, um, the level of um, happiness and, and joy in the performance of those duties is greater. So you could really do an outcome analysis here. I, I, I think a lot about, um, again, kind of using that swimming analogy, you know, uh, we think about what Michael Phelps did in doing an amazing um, run on, you know, his, his Olympic gold medal run a few years ago. Now he's not in this current Olympics, Mm-hmm. But when you break down what he did, it was all preparation. He knew when he was eating a sandwich, when he was doing a warm-up, right down to the minute to maximize his performance. And so much of it had to do with rest, breathing, his ability to focus, and then and block out other 
uh, stimuli so that he could just focus on his task at hand. So I, I really think that it is on the prevention side of, hey, how do we kind of prevent cat catastrophe? But there's a huge benefit here on the performance side of just of, of doing better at whatever your mission is. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you cut it, no matter how you break it down, this idea of taking time for preparedness, knowing that you have access to the one thing we can control in our life, ourselves, and the empathy that we learn from knowing ourselves, the ability to listen actively and engage with our community, with the people we're talking to, and the courage to step beside assumptions, um, beyond assumptions, even if we're uh, afraid of being embarrassed or getting it wrong, um, it leads to that engagement. And, oh, look, there's that piece again. It's, it's just um, such a beautiful way to think about participating in our lives um, on a daily basis, but also as we experience the ripple effect of all that 2020 was and is and shall continue to be. Awesome. Well, thanks for the opportunity to start this conversation and share some of these insights. Uh, I, um, I, I really have enjoyed sharing kind of the peace model there for, uh, as, it, as it starts off with, you know, really self-control and leading into a, you know, positive outcome for any crisis or conflict. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your hard-earned experience um, and training. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Where can they find you? Sure. We're at uh, paxgroupllc.com on the internet. Uh, you certainly connect with us on Facebook. LinkedIn is probably the easiest. And um, happy to connect with organizations that are looking to integrate um, these models and um, leverage crisis and conflict preparation for better outcomes. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for another uh, just thought-provoking, if I do say so myself, conversation. Thank you, Phil, for bringing all of those provoking thoughts. And we look forward to having you join us again next week for another episode on the Healing Ground Movement. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.